Coates and Children's Library at Princeton University Library presents The Bibliophiles. Hi, this is Dr. Dana. My guest today is award-winning author Sharon Creech. In a career that has spanned more than 20 years, Sharon Creech has produced distinctive works of literature for children and teens. Her books include Walk Two Moons, which won the Newbery Award in 1995 and inspired the companion novels Chasing Redbird and Bloomability. The Wanderer was a finalist for the Newbery Award in 2000, and Ruby Holler won the Carnegie Medal in 2002. Creech has also written books in verse, including Love That Dog, which was a finalist for the Carnegie Medal in 2001. Powerful, emotional, humorous, gracious, Sorrowful, scary, glorious, joyful, remarkable, playful, and heartfelt are words that describe the works of Sharon Creech. She excels at crafting stories that draw you in, make you think, make you feel, and make you a better person. Her newest book is The Boy on the Porch, the story of John and Marta, a young couple who find an unusual young boy on their porch. The boy can't speak, but eventually begins to communicate through his musical and artistic talents. John and Marta form a powerful bond with the boy, one that truly defines what love, trust, acceptance, and family mean. Sharon Creech joins us from Maine. Welcome to the Bibliophiles. Thank you. I'm happy to be here today. I wonder if you tell us about the very first children's book you published. What were you doing at the time, and why did you decide to write a book? Uh, The very first children's book or the very first book? Children's book. The very first children's book was Absolutely Normal Chaos, and it came after I'd written two novels for adults. That's what I thought my career would be, you know, sort of living in an attic in Paris somewhere, making very little money and writing, (laughs) you know, Hemingway, Fitzgerald-type novels. So I'd written these two novels, and then just as a departure, I heard this voice of a sort of younger child, a 13-year-old, more like my 12- or 13-year-old self, and it was a funnier book, Absolutely Normal Chaos. And when I submitted that to my agent, who had placed the first two books with a publisher in England, uh, she said, well, I think this is more a children's book. And I was a little puzzled because I wasn't quite sure what a children's book was. Um, I had been teaching English in high school, in an American school in England. And so I was teaching Shakespeare and Chaucer, and I was teaching American lit, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Hawthorne. And and even though I raised two children and read books to them, I wasn't real clear on what would make a children's book a children's book as opposed to an adult book. And that summer, I attended a workshop in um, Chautauqua, New York, where we were living at the time. It was a children's literature workshop, and it was a gathering of writers and writers-to-be talking about what makes a book a children's book. And um, it was great. Uh, Lois Lowry was there, James Cross Giblin, a lot of luminaries in the children's book world. And what I came away with was, well, it's not much different than writing for adults, except that you just have a younger narrator. And so that's how I came to write this book and feel comfortable writing it. And I had so much fun writing it. 
And it was taken by a publisher in England, and they asked for one more in that vein. And the next book in that vein was Walk Two Moons. And Walk Two Moons then was the first book that, of mine that came out in the States. And when that won the Newbery the following February, no one was more surprised than I was, but it opened a door into that whole world of children's literature that was uh, like a golden door opening, and I felt very happy there and welcome and felt ready to explore all of that. So that's kind of how I came into that world. You have a distinctive narrative voice that enfolds readers in the book, allowing them to feel what the character is feeling. It makes for incredibly powerful reading. I'm wondering if you would read one of my favorite passages from The Wanderer. Oh, sure. I'll introduce the passage by saying that the narrator is 13-year-old Sophie, who is on a long sailboat trip with her uncles and cousins. They're sailing from Connecticut to England to visit Sophie's grandfather, Bompey. Sophie is adopted, and one of the points of tension in the book is that her arrival into the adopted family was preceded by a traumatic event that occurred with her biological parents, a trauma that Sophie has yet to fully realize and face. In this scene, the sailboat has been caught in vicious storms for days, but the bad weather appears to be letting up. Chapter 49, Spinning. Cody and Uncle Doc and I went on watch at about one in the morning. It seemed as if the weather had started to let up, and we were hoping that by the end of our watch, we'd be able to turn the wanderer over to Uncle Mo and Brian and Uncle Stu in calmer seas. Smite the sounding furrows, Uncle Doc yelled. More poetry, I said. Yep, he said. We'd been on watch about an hour when Cody shouted to me, Sierra Oscar, your highness, where is it? My head was so numb, my ears were plugged. What was he saying? He shouted again, tugging at his belt. Your Highness! I tapped my head as if there were a crown there and curtsied. I thought he was playing some kind of game. He left his post and dashed below deck, and when he came up, he was holding my safety harness. Oh, he'd been saying harness. I felt so stupid. Cody fastened it for me and said, You've got to wear this, Sophie. You've got to. Oh, I said, Weather's letting up. We're okay. We're not okay, Sophie. Wear this. But the seas did seem to settle for an hour or so, and the wind eased. I watched Cody as he moved about the deck. One minute he was trimming a sail. The next minute he was fastening a line, scooping up a loose cushion, stowing it, returning to the sails. Doc was doing the same things on the other side of the deck. They moved with seeming ease in those choppy seas, and it seemed as if this were a play, and their movements were gracefully choreographed. Around 3.30 in the morning, about a half hour before the end of our watch, the wind and waves picked up again. Uncle Doc was in the cockpit, Cody was at the wheel, and I was sitting next to the hatch that covers the cabin, watching the waves coming up behind us in order to warn Cody and Doc when a big one was on its way. As each wave started to build, it made me weak and queasy, not so much from the motion, but from the fear that this wave would be too big, that this one would roll us over. Off in the distance, I saw a wave that looked different from all the others. It was much bigger, at least 50 feet high, it seemed, and not dark like the others. It was white, all white, and the entire wave was foam as if it had just broken. 
I stared at it for a couple of seconds, trying to figure out what was up with it. And by that time, it was right behind us, growing bigger and bigger, still covered with foam. I shouted a warning to Cody. Cody, look behind! He turned, looked quickly, and then turned back around, crouched down, and braced himself. Most of the waves that break behind us roll under the stern. The foam was sometimes coming up over the sides of the cockpit. But this wave was unlike any other. It had a curl, a distinct high curl. I watched it growing up behind us higher and higher, and then it curled over the wanderer, thousands of gallons of water, white and lashing. Cody, Doc, I yelled. And then I saw it hit Cody like a million bricks on his head and shoulders. I took a deep breath, closed my eyes, and covered my head. I was inside the wave, floating, spinning, thrown this way and that. I remember thinking, hold that breath, Sophie, and then wondering if my breath would last. Such intense force was pushing me. It didn't seem like it could possibly be water, soft, gentle water that was doing this. I couldn't remember about the harness. I didn't feel attached to anything. Was it on or not? I was going overboard. I was sure of it. Underwater forever, twisting and turning, scrunched in a little ball. Was this the ocean? Was I over the side and in the sea? Was I four years old? In my head, a child's voice was screaming, Mommy! Daddy! And then I heard, Sophie! I think I will be sick now, writing about it. Thank you. You're welcome. Tell us about your narrative voice. Do you feel it was always there, or is it something that developed slowly? I think it developed uh, slowly, and it was something that really took a turn when I was in graduate school, and I took a course, I think it was maybe writing for teachers of English, for them to teach writing. And in the course, one of the first things the professor had us do was free writing. And most people are now familiar with that term, but it's an exercise where you write very fast, as fast as you can, just trying to capture whatever thoughts are tumbling around in your head, and you don't stop to correct any words or stop for grammar or whatever. You just sort of let it all unroll. And I had such an amazing experience with that in that once I started to do that, these really wonderful voices started to connect, or rhythms, I should say. And it was something much more free than any other writing I'd ever done. And what I realized, the more I did that, I started to then write stories in that way, writing the rough draft in this kind of free writing exercise, and then going back to polish it later. And what I realized was that I was tapping into something a little more subconscious, you know, a little less... um, intellectual, and it was, um, these were rhythms that were somehow resonating in me or appealing to me. And so that's then, that I turned to that then when I started writing novels where I would see usually, I would have an image in my mind of a person and a place. This is pretty much true with all my books. I get an image in my mind of a person and a place. I don't always know where that comes from. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But once that person and place is in my mind, I, I listen for a voice. And when I hear the voice of the main character um, and I start to write out, you know, maybe the person is talking to someone or whatever, when I catch the rhythm, then I go with that and I know that I'll be able to immerse into that character. That will lead me into the whole narrative voice for the whole story. 
Sometimes it's a playful voice. Sometimes it's a very lyrical voice or a serious voice. But whatever it is, that first voice that grabs me is the one that's going to dictate the tone and the style, even the content for the whole book. Many of your characters are quirky and a little different from the average person. <laughs> Tiller and Sari from Ruby Holler immediately come to mind, as do Gramps and Gran from Walk Two Moons and Leo from Replay. Have you known someone like these characters? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose so. I, I think um, I have a very wacky family. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I think I, I draw upon brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins and and just people I observe, I'm drawn to people who are a little quirky and a little unusual, but always with a sort of humorous vein. So I'm, I'm particularly drawn to people like I think ones in my family are. They're very loving people, but they are not sappy. They're, there's a kind of little edge, a little wacky, quirky edge to it, you know, that they'll tease you or, you know, they won't let you get away with anything. <laughs> But um, so Tiller and Sari, for instance, and Graham and Gramps, I think those characters particularly come out of a real mishmash of, you know, from my grandparents to my parents to my sisters and brothers and their spouses. And so many of them have this relationship of, again, very loving, but also this teasing kind of thing that goes on, like between Graham and Gramps, you know, that Graham is always kind of putting Gramps back in his place, and, <laughs> and but he's all, oh, Gooseberry, you know, and <laughs> same with Tiller and Sari, you know, she's always trying to get him to calm down now, tell her it's going to be okay, <laughs> and, and he's all flustered with these kids, and so that's kind of like the men in my family needing the soft touch of a woman to kind of ease the edges I get a bit, I guess. And Leo, people like Leo and some of the younger narrators, are probably more like, there's always a part of me that is strong in them, and it's maybe me plus what I've seen in my own children or students I've taught. With Leo, for instance, um, I had in mind the Walter Mitty character from the, that story, Walter Mitty. Uh, you know, a, this that was an adult character who sort of daydreams his life. But the reason that story had always resonated with me was that I, I'm very much like that. You know, I'll be in a situation, maybe I'll be in a committee, an English committee, department committee, you know, and <laughs> my mind is just way far away from that committee room. And, you know, maybe I'm sailing the seven seas or whatever, something or doing something particularly heroic and lovely. Um, and so that's sort of where, you know, Leo came out of that sort of, you know, wanting to or that the imagination of a child like that. Um, people like Salamanca in Walk Two Moons, uh, she's very much a mishmash of me, my daughter, me and my daughter particularly, I think, just in a way kind of very sensitive to the world and a little quiet and an observer, but also with this little edge of humor you know, in her. Um, and Phoebe, like, People often ask, well, where did Phoebe Winterbottom come from in Walk Two Moon? She's completely unlike Sal. And and that's true. She is unlike Sal, but she's that's another part of me, too, is this sort of, oh, the part 
the imaginative part that overreacts to something. You know, if mm-hmm. someone says something, I'll imagine the worst scene or the most frightful scene, <laughs> and I can't go to sleep at night. You know, that kind of thing. I love Phoebe. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always fun for me to have a character, parallel character like that, who, if there's, if the narrator is more sensitive, serious type, then I almost need to have someone like a Phoebe to balance that. You know, to to have a place to have fun with. It, and to also take the, you know, so that the main character doesn't come off as sappy, you know, and kind of call the main character on some of the things that might become that way. In Love That Dog, you used a real person, the poet Walter <laughs> Dean Myers, as a character. Do you, do you know him? What made you decide to include him? Well, I know him now. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was another of those strange things in that, uh, I had a poem posted on my bulletin board that had, had been on a card a librarian had sent me. For several years, this had been on my bulletin board, and it's the first stanza of Walter Dean Myers' poem, Love That Boy. I didn't know it was written by Walter Dean Myers. I just had that first stanza, and it was there on my bulletin board because I loved it so much. And one day, again, several years after I'd first put it up there as I was looking at it, I started to wonder about that boy in the poem, and I thought, well, if he's so loved, then maybe he too loves something deeply. Maybe he owe a dog, uh, maybe also his teacher. And then just really quickly, I saw in my mind an image of a boy. He was sitting at his desk. He was looking at a poem, and he did not look happy. And out poured this story. And it was in the very early stages of writing this that I looked closer at that poem and I saw in very small letters at the bottom it said, by Walter Dean Myers. And I thought, oh, I met him once. I had met him once at a HarperCollins dinner. He was seated next to me and he had the most beautiful voice, very low and deep and resonant. And it just sort of wrapped everybody in this big hug. And he also had this wonderful laugh this very, again, low, booming laugh. He's a very big man. And it just, there was just something wonderful emanating from this person. But I only had spent maybe, you know, that two hours with him. And so as I'm writing the story, I was not thinking consciously that Walter Dean Myers would become a character. But as it began to um, seem that the boy in the book, Jack, would, he's very concerned that you know, maybe boys don't write poetry. Maybe it's only a girl thing. I thought, well, the teacher would offer him poems by male poets to counterbalance that thought of his. And I thought, well, of course, she'll offer him Walter D. Myers. And then it just seemed natural, since I get so many letters from kids saying, will you please come to my school, mm-hmm. that they would want him to come to the school. And so I thought, well, I can't use real Walter Dean Myers, but for now, I'm just going to put him in here, and then later I'll change it probably to a fictional author. So Walter D. Myers entered the story, and he was perfect in the story. Of course, he, he needed to be there. But so I finished it, and I thought, well, I can't do that, can I? So I kind of put it away, and um, my editor, meanwhile, had been saying, what are you working on? What are you working on? And I said, oh, you know, I don't know this thing. Uh, it's not really, I don't know. Finally, she got me to tell her a little bit about it. And I said, well, the problem is it has a real person in it. And she said, just send it to me and and I'll get back to you. So I sent it to her like on a Friday or Thursday or Friday. On Monday morning, she calls me and says, love this 
book. So I was like, mm-hmm. oh, great. But what about Walter Dean Myers? And she said, look, I'm going to send it to Walter, and we'll just see you know, how he feels about it. And I said, good, because if he has any objections whatsoever, you know, we have to take him out, and I have to do something different. She was fine with that. The editor was fine. She sent it to Walter, and he was very touched and very gracious about it and gave his full permission to be used as a character in the book. Since then, I've met him many times, and we've done some dual readings of this book together, and he is just a lovely man. And he now gets letters. He said he can always tell when they've read Love That Dog because he gets letters that are addressed to him the way Jack does in the book. Dear Mr. Walter Dean Myers. It's <laughs> very, very cute. <laughs> do you have a favorite poem from the book? I do. I, I especially love his uh, poem. I don't have all the stanzas of his poem handy, but I do have that first stanza. Would you like me to read that? I would love it. Okay, this is Love That Boy by Walter Dean Myers, the first stanza. Love that boy like a rabbit loves to run. I said, I love that boy like a rabbit loves to run. Love to call him in the morning. Love to call him, hey there, son. Isn't that lovely? Yes. There's <laughs> just, just such a wonderful, happy rhythm about it and so much love right there. Over your long career, I'm sure you've encountered negative criticism of your work. How do you deal with it? Well... Negative criticism. Fortunately, it's rare. <laughs> Fortunately, what especially because you're writing for young people, and you hear a lot um, from them. They'll write you letters, and they're so gracious, and they're so loving, and so wonderful, and so you get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters of positive criticism. But having said that, you encounter negative criticism along the way. From the very first, when you send it in to your editor, um, Fortunately, my editor and I have an agreement where she will first tell me the things that she likes. She'll first give me the positive comments, Mm -hmm. and then she will tell me the things that she thinks need work, which would fall under the negative criticism side of things. And it's much easier to take that way. I expect it. Um, I, I hope for it because I know that a book is not going to be perfect when I hand it in. It's the best I can make it, but I need that negative criticism so that I can spot then the weak areas that I've not been able to spot until someone else has looked at them. Once the book goes out into the world, there's a very scary time uh, right before the first reviews come out or about the time the first reviews come out. And that's when your little baby is out in the world being judged by people and sometimes judged very harshly and sometimes misread. At least you feel somebody has misread the book or or has some agenda that they're coming at the book from a sort of hostile attitude, and those can be very difficult to read. Uh, However, I've learned that I read them, and then I put them away, (laughs) and then Mm -hmm. I try not to give any more credence to the negative ones than to the positive ones, but I I will come back to the negative ones and, and, and try to evaluate, you know, when I've calmed down a bit. Because okay. it's, it's it's hurtful sometimes to read some things like that when you've put your heart and soul into a book. But I, I'm able to distance myself after a time, and I'm, I come back always with the intention of, okay, what can I learn from that? What is that valid, or is that just one person's skewed opinion? Should I pay attention to that? You know, is there a, a point there that I need to look at? And so... That's pretty much how I handle it. 
there's it's funny though that um you could receive a hundred letters and ninety nine of them might be glowing. But if one is sort of mean <laughs> you will remember the mean one. Yeah. And it's just so <laughs> bizarre that that happens. There was a um when Ruby Holler was up for the Carnegie Medal in England, which is their version of the Newberry. They post a, a short list, and then they have schools uh, weigh in and um, give students give their opinions of the books before the final voting process. And they're so candid, these kids. And a lot of the kids, a lot of the comments are positive, but a lot are negative for all the books, not just mine. And there was one boy who said, um, if I were given the choice between reading this book again and cleaning my teeth with sulfuric acid, I would choose the acid. <laughs> and you're like, I can arrange that. <laughs> and at first you're like, oh, my God. But it is it was so funny also to me that I have remembered that comment. It's been 10 years probably since oh. I remembered that negative comment, but I don't. I don't take it. That's not really negative criticism so much as just, I don't know what. But. <laughs> oh. Of all the books you've written, do you have a favorite? I don't, because it's like you'll hear so many authors say, you know, it's like your children. I have 20, 19 children here, yeah. and each one represents a whole year at least of my life and a whole year of thought and care and so much went into the making of that book. It's like a part of me is in that book, like that's my left foot, this is my right arm, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's just, it would be too hard to choose, you know, their favorites for different reasons. Having said that, I often do say that the most recent book is usually slightly favored because it's like the new baby in the family and you are a little more careful of it. You're wanting to let it go out gently into the world. You hope people will be kind to it. So right now, that's The Boy on the Porch, which is just tenderly out there. (laughs) So tell us a little bit more about The Boy on the Porch. The Boy on the Porch, uh, this is how it came to me. I woke up one morning, and I heard these words in my head, The Boy on the Porch, just that little phrase. I didn't think too much of it, but the next morning I heard the same words, very distinct, right when I woke up, the boy on the porch. I thought, oh, I think I heard that yesterday. And then that same day after a nap, I heard, I woke and heard this, the boy on the porch. And I thought, all right, what's going on? There's <laughs> something here that wants to be told. And usually, you know, I've learned to follow up on these instincts. And so I thought I better find out who this boy on the porch is. And so I began this story of, the boy on the porch, trying to find out who was this boy who was left on the porch. And that's how it unfolded. And um, the boy on the porch, like so many characters, this actual boy arrived without being able to speak. Now, really metaphorically, all characters enter my mind that way, unable to speak. And it's not until they speak that I understand them. And I thought, well, what... What if this boy doesn't speak at all? How will I know and how will the reader know what he's like or you know, what would this present for the reader and for the people who are caring for him? And so that became the sort of forward movement of the story was trying to find out if a boy doesn't speak, 
how do you find out about him and how does the relationship grow between the older couple and the boy. And as I was writing, I, I could feel parallels between that and, say, Ruby Holler with Tiller and Sari and the two children they take on Florida and Dallas, in that the older couple is shaping the child and the children as much as the reverse is happening. The child or children are shaping the adults. I realize now, I, I think I come back to that in many of my books. It's even true in Walk Two Moons with Graham and Gramps and Sal, that this notion of this older generation and the younger generation and what they have to offer each other, um, probably because my own grandparents and aunts and uncles were influential in my life, not something I realized really growing up, but now I can more clearly recognize that all of that sort of shaped who I am today. Sharon Creech, thank you so much for coming on The Bibliophiles. Thank you for having me. It was a wonderful morning's conversation.